morning, and uh, happy Father's Day. Father's Day for me means I can eat as many chocolates as I want, and Elaine won't tell me off. <laughs> so, uh, but you're very welcome to our service this morning. It's our communion service, and if you're visitors here, uh, you're very welcome also. And uh, as long as you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome around the table. Now. Uh, just to let you know, if there's any visitors here who've got children, we're having a Sunday club and Bible class. It's like a barbecue party over there. So if you see any children um, anywhere, uh, please feel free. They're very welcome to come uh, to that. Um, let, let me just do a couple of wee announcements. Uh, this is a wee bit different, this communion service this morning. We're going to have three short talks rather than one main one. And we'll see how that goes. But uh, this evening at half past seven, we're going to meet uh, for worship and prayer just in the prayer room or the quiet room there on my left. And uh, we're going to have a wee look at fears about praying, why people are frightened sometimes to pray, and also when our prayers don't seem to be working. So we'll be looking at that as well as worshiping the Lord and, and prayer. This coming Tuesday, the 20th of June, we have our AGM, which starts at half past seven. Uh, we hope as many as possible can come along. Uh, some of the organizations and groups will be telling us a wee bit about what they've been doing, and we'll be praying for them. Next Sunday, the 25th of June, after the morning service, there'll be a special congregational meeting. Um, if at all possible, can you be sure to attend? And if anybody's not here this morning, you, for some reason they can't make it, if you'd let them know, uh, that'll be next Sunday after the service, a special congregational meeting. Please note also that we've had the council life lounge for this month, for June, uh, but we hope very much to resume in September. So just keep an eye on Facebook and the order service. Uh, you'll see the request for help by Ben in the order service today. Please give this serious consideration. It's for Kids Club. Uh, we hope to ho hold a Kids Club during the summer. If you have any questions, please speak to Ben in person or use the details given in the order service. If you can help in any way, even one day, uh, or doing something in, that you think is your gift that would be able to help Ben and help us all that week, that would be tremendous. We're also, we're hoping to hold an Alpha course uh, for those within our church and also opening it up to the community as well. Uh, come the autumn time, the course will begin on Wednesday, the 27th of September. Uh, if you'd like to volunteer to help in any way, please come to a meeting in the church on Thursday, the 29th of June at half past seven. And I'll remind you of that as we get closer to the time, but it would be great. Uh, to have a super team, to have a strong team of all sorts of gifts of, from people that they can help us out with that. It's a very worthy cause of reaching out into the community. Just finally, uh, about the deep sea fishing, there's a few people who have put their name down. We're taking men deep sea fishing. I was in touch with Brian Maharg during the week, and uh, he said this weekend was actually the start of it all, and he still has to get the weekdays sorted out when he's going. So as soon as I find out, he's texting me the weekdays, and we'll pick a weekday, and uh, we'll announce it here, but we'll also put it through the Men's Fellowship uh, chat group as well. I think that's all of this, the announcements. So let's, let's just still our hearts as we come before God uh, in prayer. Psalm 62, verse 1, Father, truly my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Lord, I pray that as we come in from a, a busy world, that you would settle our hearts this morning. That would you come by your Holy Spirit and just still our hearts and still our minds and help us to focus the eyes of our heart on you. For you have something to say to us today and we have got something to give to you also in our worship and our praise. As Greeks came to see the disciples, they said we would see Jesus. And Lord, that is our prayer today, that we would see Jesus 
today. Amen. Let's, let's start by worshiping God with, and we'll, let's remain seated for this one just as a contemplative worship. Open our eyes, Lord. Uh, I want to see Jesus. to come and do a reading for us. Three of our readings today, all from Isaiah 53. Our first reading is from Isaiah 53, and it's verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Amen. Thank you, Pat. Uh, Chris, if you just put on a wee PowerPoint there, uh, there's one PowerPoint slide for each of these talks. Just the first one is the silence of Jesus. The silence of Jesus. You know, most weeks we focus on what Jesus said, but this week, I want to focus on his silence. Oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. It's been said of the Lord Jesus Christ that never did a man speak like he spoke. But it could also be said that never was a man silent as he was in the face of suffering. And how easy it is when we suffer, we can become frustrated, we can become annoyed, disappointed, angry, and we can take it out on those around us. But Jesus, silence. And as he stands before Caiaphas, the high priest, and he's accused of blasphemy, he's silent except when he's forced to answer when Caiaphas says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And after claiming his divine nature, they begin to spit on him, they beat him, they slap his face, they make fun, they say, prophesy to us, Christ, who was it that slapped you? It's very difficult, isn't it, whenever someone is under such abuse, you maybe experience it yourself, it's difficult just to let it pass by. It's difficult to not come out fighting. Then before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he stands accused of treason. And again, he's silent. 
except to answer Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And he replies, it is as you say. And then when he's taken out into the Praetorian guard, the, the, the palace guard room, and the soldiers get him, and they strip him, and they crown him with thorns, and they blindfold him, and they spit on him, and they hit him with a stick in the face, and they mock him, and not a single word crosses his lips. Oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What restraint! And then when Pilate sends him to Herod, Christ is questioned over many things by this King Herod, the man who, who executed John the Baptist's cousin. But yet he speaks not a word. And finally at Calvary, when he's, he's led the thief on the cross into, into to himself and, and into heaven, but he... he, he once he, that's finished, darkness covers the earth for three hours. Hell does its worst against him. Nails are put through both his hands and his feet, and there's silence, and there's silence for three hours until with that gut-wrenching cry, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in all of this, Jesus Christ spoke not one word of complaint. Not once does he seek to plead his innocence. The only time he speaks is to verify his testimony of who he is. And what restraint Christ had. But why such restraint? His whole being, his body, his mind, and his spirit, they totally surrendered to the will of God, to the will of his Father. And that didn't mean it was easy. In Gethsemane, you remember, he wrestles with the thoughts of tomorrow. He falls down on his knees, and he prays to his father with great sweats of drops of blood coming from him. And he says, Father, if it is possible, if at all it's possible, if there's another way to do this, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will but as you will. Jesus gives his best. The only way he could give his best was to completely and utterly surrender to his Father's will. In John 4, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's why I get out of bed in the morning. That's what motivates me every day. And before these people he wouldn't argue case for himself. Without reservation, his heart was surrendered to be bound and brought as a lamb to be slaughtered, totally surrendered, and he opened not his mouth. Just imagine what we could achieve for God if our commitment and our surrender to his will was as decisive as that, without reservation. But what I want to make you think about this morning in this section is how he loves us, his faithfulness towards us. He knew that a wrong word out of his lips could upset the apple cart and take him down in a different direction, away as from his father's will, and so he keeps his mouth shut. You know, most men would be crying for mercy. Most men would be fighting back. But Jesus, whose mouth spoke words of healing to the blind and the crippled, whose mouth spoke forgiveness to the prostitute, whose mouth packed the wisdom of heaven into one sermon, whose mouth spoke such insightful parables, now his mouth is silent, and it's silent for our redemption. It's silent. He stands in my place, in your place, defenseless, as he consents to bear the judgment that's due to you and I on his own shoulders. The silence of Jesus. And he commits himself into his Father's hands. I wonder, have you ever stood in the presence of the Lord with your head bowed and your heart bowed, silent, with no excuses? with no arguments, with no complaints. Lord Jesus, I am wrong. 
you are right. You know, true humility is the silence of the soul before God, where there are no more excuses. I don't have any more excuses, God. I don't have any arguments to bring you. I've been in the wrong, and I find your grace. Let's pray. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Then he, then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, you know what that means to every one of us, Lord, that are trusting in you? It means that whatever darkness comes, whatever trial comes, we have the Son of God by our side. Lord, those folk from Caiaphas, to Pilate, to the soldiers, to Herod. They didn't know who you were. But Lord, we know who you are. And may we stand together and proclaim it as we sing this next song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. to ask John Armstrong to come and do our next reading for us. The second reading is from Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem.
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Amen. Thank you, John. I just want you to allow your emotions to be touched this morning. Because often as Presbyterians, especially male Presbyterians, uh, we hold back from all of that. Um, but this is, this is what Christ has done for us. So we're going to look now just at the shame of Jesus. And I want to just listen to these adjectives which describe our Savior. Despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, or translated literally, a man of pains. Knowing what grief is, we reckon, says Isaiah, that he was smitten by God, that he was stricken, that he was afflicted. In other words, it would seem to the onlooker that God himself was angry with this Messiah, that God himself was punishing him and beating him. Verse 2, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him there, there's no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think for a moment that Isaiah is casting dispersions on Jesus' physical appearance. Jesus was the perfect man, a man who would reflect the image of God, a man with no distortions in his character. Not one ounce of corruption was in Christ. But what I suspect, what Isaiah is referring to here, it's Jesus' appearance after he's been at the end of many fists, after he's had 39 lashes of the whip, you know, after he's been thrown from pillar to post and bruised and damaged almost beyond recognition. And Isaiah writes, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Too horrendously damaged, so he was, to look upon him. Too horrendously damaged. Not easy on the eyes. We're told he was despised and we did not esteem him. That little word, esteem, it's an accountancy term. And it means that basically in this sentence, we esteemed him uh, not you know, we added up all of his value, we added up all of his potential, all of his worth, and the total came to a big fat, fat zero. It sounds like the man described by Luke in his gospel, when Jesus, after having been flogged by Pilate's guards, he walks very shakily back into Pilate's court. He's wearing his crown of thorns. He's got a purple robe upon him, which they placed on him when they were mocking him. And Pilate looks at him probably with quite a sympathetic heart. He looks at the state of him and he says, behold the man. Behold the man. And then frustratingly, frustratingly, Pilate tries to draw something from Jesus anything from Jesus that would give him a reason to set him free. He so wants to set him free. Just give me something, Jesus. Where are you from? Jesus didn't answer. Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And then before a crowd, Pilate asks, who do you want, Barabbas, this murderer? Or do you want Jesus who calls himself the king of the Jews? Before Jesus' family, in front of his friends, in front of everyone who's come for Passover to Jerusalem, and they cry Barabbas. And as for Jesus, they cry, crucify him, crucify him. In his life on earth, he's been called Christ. He's been called Messiah. He's been called Rabbi. He's been called teacher. Son of David, Lord, Master. But now it seems that his life will end with those blood-curdling cries, crucify him. You know, a man who's shamed, he's broken, he's bruised, he's bullied, he's beaten, he's laughed at, he's humiliated, all his dignity is gone, and yet the cruel twist was that they would do such a thing to the Son of God. And on top of all this, 
on top of all this, as he arrives at Calvary's hill, the Roman guards that are on duty that day, they strip him naked. They strip him naked. They divide his undergarments amongst one another, and then they gamble for this one-piece garment that he wore as he traveled from town to town, bringing healing and hope to all he met. But now his flesh, torn body, being nailed to a cross in the brutal act of crucifixion, it was a torturous death. It was a death that the Romans copied from the, the Greeks, and it was a way of saying, if you want to tackle us, if any of you Jews want, are thinking of crime or rebellion or revolution, look at this cross and just remind yourself that could be you. That's what the signal was that went out. It was a, it was a, the death of shame, or the sh it just was the, the death of utter shame. No mother ever wanted their child to see a man upon the cross. It was the death of shame. And around the city of Jerusalem, there was a fire that burnt continually. It was called Gehenna. It was a place where all the rubbish was always burnt there. It was kept burning all the time. Um, and every time there was a crucifixion, when, when the prisoners were taken off the crosses, they would be dragged over to this rubbish pit, which was a light, and they'd be thrown in there. And that's where Jesus was going to be head, heading if it hadn't have been for Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pilate and asked him, can we have his body? I'd like to bury him in my own grave. And fulfilling the scriptures, of course, Isaiah 53, again, we're told they made his grave with the wicked, namely the thieves. He died with the thieves. He died with the fellow prisoners. But with the rich at his death, that was Joseph's grave. You know, how spot on was Paul when he wrote in Philippians 2, verse 8? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And if that isn't enough, he continues, he says, even death of the cross, the death of shame. And even the value of friendship was greatly shaken. One disciple betrayed him. One disciple denied him, the rest ran away. Let's pray. Can we, just what can we say about this? The ever faithfulness to his Father's will. Christ ever faithful to you and me, never flinching for one moment. He remains silent even in such shame. In the worst moment of man's being unfaithful, he remains faithful. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we love him today because he first loved us. Let's just reflect on those things and as we, <clears throat> as we remain seated and listen to his mercy is more every sin of mine, every sin of yours, past, present, and future, put upon his shoulders. He was silent about it. He walked the, the walk of shame about it. And he never stops loving us and forgiving us and caring for us. Let's, let's sit as we think about his mercy is more, and feel free, please, to sing along if you know this song.
offering and I be received. Thank you.
Let's pray. Father, we recognize that worship is more than a Sunday morning singing, more than a Sunday morning service. Lord, it involves every part of our lives, our workplaces, our home lives, our social lives. Lord, our quiet times with you. Lord, it involves everything we do. And we bring another part of our worship is giving to you, Lord, that you might in your grace extend your kingdom and the gospel to to those that aren't within our our church but are beyond our church that you would use this money we pray father for for the gospel to be to be written on people's hearts in our community by by things we do by events that take place but more than that but by the lives that we live that we might be a light and salt in this community. But God, we surrender these offerings to you and we pray, Lord, we thank you for the people that have given them, Lord, for the work that they've had to do to earn this money and hand it over to you. We pray, God, that it might be used for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask Florence to come and do our next reading for us. The third reading is from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Amen. Thank you, Florence. I remember when I was a, a boy, I watched uh, the graphic scene of the crucifixion on the film Jesus of Nazareth. And I used to get really annoyed, thinking to myself, why doesn't somebody help him? You know, if I, if I had been there, I'd have rugby tackled the Golden Guards or I'd have tried anything to prevent him from being crucified. But then, as I matured and I became more aware of the story in the scriptures, I realized that someone had already tried to stop the crucifixion. His name was Peter, who, we're told, took Jesus aside and forcefully said to him that he would not allow him to be arrested or crucified. But you remember that Peter got a forceful rebuke for his trouble. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Because all of God's salvation had been leading up to this point. There are drips of blood throughout the whole of the Old Testament into the new and right the way up to the foot of the cross. I've shared with you before about the crucifixion and how it worked. And often we become very familiar with it. You know, we become very familiar with the signs of the cross, maybe a necklace around our neck, and, and we lose that understanding of how incredibly brutal it was. So let me just remind you a wee bit about what happens when a prisoner is put on the cross. The arms are nailed first, then the feet. It's then lifted and it's jolted into place. And at that moment, the pain must be horrific because the weight of the body is thrown forward. The pain beginning from the nails in the hands, it runs up the arms, every sinew and nerve causing pain to shoot every muscle. Likewise with the legs, the pain moving from the point of entry, the nails going in the feet, up the legs, into the back. The prisoner would automatically then press up with his feet on this little wedge at the bottom of the cross. And uh, the pain when he did that would be fractionally reduced. His feet, feet would be bearing the weight of the body. 
depending on how strong the prisoner was. Uh, crucifixions could go on for three or four days, hanging there for three or four days. Eventually the strength would wane with the legs too weak to hold the body and the lungs then would begin to fill with fluid and the prisoner would slowly drown from the fluid on, in his lungs. It was death by drowning. Jesus, because he'd already been beaten within an inch of his life, it didn't take days of, for his death to come. The whip they used on Jesus, it was made of very tough hide of an ox. It was twisted around into knots and inserted at the ends were hard animal bone. And after 39 lashes, the skin on Jesus' back must have looked like it had been through a cheese grater. On occasions when the crucifixions took place the day before the Sabbath, they didn't want the deaths to be prolonged into the Sabbath, so the Roman guards would go around and break the legs of the prisoners to speed up their deaths so they could no longer force their bodies up and take the weight off their bodies. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs, after all he had been through, he was dead already. So that's, that's the physical nature of the crucifixion. But when for Jesus there's this sense of the spiritual abandonment which Christ felt. Garden of Gethsemane feels the weight of responsibility on his shoulders, frightened of tomorrow, frightened of what is ahead. He says to Peter, James, and John, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrow even to death. That's, I want you to think about that. That's horrific. That's horrific to start with. He's saying, my soul is in such a deep, dark place of depression. I feel with this sheer weight of what I'm carrying that I could die on the spot before I even get to the cross. He says to them, stay here and watch with me. And in spite of the pressure he feels, in spite of the darkness he feels at this moment, Fortunately, he still has contact with heaven when he's still in the garden. Luke chapter tell, tells us in chapter 22 that an angel comes to him, strengthens him. Even to see an angel reminds him that heaven is still on his side. But when he's nailed to the cross, that's a different story. When he's nailed to the cross and the cross is jolted into place, a, Everything goes dark. The pressure intensifies as the sin of the world is placed upon his shoulders. Heaven goes silent. He's totally separated from his Father. You know, just as we would be separated from God by sin if it wasn't for Christ, he is separated by our sin. It's our sin that separates him that day. Never for one second has Jesus Christ in all of eternity ever been separated from his Father. Never has he ever received an engaged tone at the end of the line. He's part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, always relating and responding to the Father and the Holy Spirit all throughout eternity. They have this beautiful relationship. But now heaven's silent. And from the depths of utter emotional and spiritual agony and torture, spiritual torture to be separated from his father, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's heartbreaking. Such physical, emotional, spiritual torture. Paul's amazed at Christ's love. The Apostle Paul is just blown away by his love. He talks in Ephesians about the width of it and the length of it and the depth of it and the height of it. And he longs for the church in Ephesus to know that love too. You know, it's not something you can academically know. Paul's saying, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit might reveal to you how precious to Christ you truly, truly are. 
wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. For our salvation, we must rely upon one thing and one thing only, the wounds of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. We're trusting in him as the one who suffered on our behalf. He has borne your guilt. He's borne my guilt. So you don't have to bear it. So I don't have to bear it. Every stripe of that lash he received in your place, every nail that pierced his skin was for you. And by his stripes we are healed. If you turn to Christ and you turn from sin by his stripes, you are healed. Healed from the death that sin carries. I wonder what does Christ want to say to us this morning? Maybe he's trying to say, survey the cross. Survey the cross and you will see how much I love you. Let's stand and sing as before we come around the Lord's table. When I survey the wondrous cross. Whether you're a member or not a member of the church, if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and are seeking to live for him, I welcome you around the Lord's table this morning. And as we come around the table, let's reflect on Jesus remaining silent. And you, are, you and I are the reason why he remained silent. He underwent such shame and humiliation, a complete loss of dignity and you and I are the reason why. And he surrendered to such suffering, physical suffering, spiritual torture, that sense of complete spiritual abandonment. And again, you and I are the reason why. 
see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? We love him this morning because he first loved us. You know how easy it is for our love for him to grow familiar, to grow lukewarm, but his love never does. His love for you is always as fresh as it has ever been and always in, as intense as it ever will be. Even when we feel that he's not there, and sometimes we feel that, but the truth is he is there. And he's here this morning meeting with us around this table. And our sure and certain hope is this. We preach Christ crucified, but we also preach Christ risen from the dead. In Jesus' sacrifice, his death was swallowed up by life, and he's here this morning by his Spirit. And Jesus never said, I am the way, the truth, and the death. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his death and resurrection have opened up to every sinner a way back to the Father. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And that's what we remember this morning. Death is swallowed up in victory. He is risen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 29. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had taken bread, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord as an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Christ is with us this morning. And he calls us to come, and there's not a person here who's not a sinner. He calls us to come around the table and to know his presence, to know his forgiveness, to know his peace in our lives. Let's give thanks for the bread and the wine. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these symbols of bread and wine. The bread, as we break, reminds us of your body that was incredibly stretched and broken for each of us. And the wine reminds us of the blood that spilt from your forehead, from your arms, from your feet, from your side. Lord, we want to thank you, Lord, for these symbols, but we want to thank you more for you, for who you are, for what you have done. Amen. I received from the Lord that which I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
Let's drink together. We preach Christ crucified, but we don't worship a dead Christ. We worship a risen Savior. So let's stand and, and in our final hymn today, let's celebrate not just his death, but his resurrection um, and his reality in our lives, not just for a Sunday morning, but for whatever you're facing this week, whatever day, he's there with you. Praise the Lord. Let's stand. Oh, praise the name of the Lord Most High. Just before I say the benediction, may I just say that if you'd like to become a communicant member of the church or even like to inquire about it, uh, we'll be holding a communicant classes in the autumn. Please, if you're interested, please have a, a chat with myself or with Billy Heintman. 
just want to finish with the benediction from, it's from Jude um, in the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.